I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to the History Today podcast for July 2015. In this episode, a fascinating look at a language that is the source for many spoken today and a report on an exhibition about one of the first photographers to document India and Burma. Firstly, a quick mention that the August issue of History Today is out now. In our August issue, we've got the fall of Robespierre, Richard III and the medieval cult of sainthood, and a look at what the early modern city really smelled like. You can buy the issue via our website, or download it with the History Today app. Now on with the show. Harry Ritchie is the author of English for the Natives, Discover the Grammar You Don't Know You Know. In our August issue, he's written about Proto-Indo-European, a little-known language that, remarkably, is the source of the languages spoken today by more than 3 billion people, from the Hebrides to the Himalayas. Early this week, our editor, Paul Lay, caught up with Harry by phone. Can you tell us something about the particular time period we're talking about, Harry? now, but I mean, maybe six years ago or so, it would have been a bit more difficult. It's only very recently that this tribe has been identified in time. Um, We've known about them for 200 years, but just identifying when they existed and where has always been very problematic. But recently, I think the the, the new research points to 3,500 BC and a homeland in near Volgograd, (laughs) uh, just north of the Caspian Sea on the edge of the steppes. This is a tribe that lived in that specific place and at that specific time in the 4th century BC at the start of the Bronze Age. And that one tribe um, bequeathed their language. We all, from Iceland to Nepal, we all speak. Uh, descendants of that one language. And you talk about this being a language that's a theory that's a couple of centuries old. Um, How did that derive from it? Basically people uh, discovering relationships between Sanskrit and ancient Greek, I understand. Yes, it started uh, um, people started to notice at the end of the 18th century how uh, the similarities between not just between Latin and Greek individual words and the way that they worked. But also, very interestingly, they thought, and absolutely rightly, Sanskrit. Sanskrit was um, very like uh, ancient Greek, but even more so, even more complicated in its, uh, in its gr- 
mathematical system, and they were, the people were really impressed by this, and really impressed by the fact that a non-European language could bear such an uncanny resemblance to, you know, the most revered European language, which is Greek. Um, so this people, the 19th century, it was a great achievement, really, of the 19th century linguists, uh, called themselves philologists, to, to trace the history of all Europe's words. Um, and a massive undertaking, you know, you just look at all the vocabularies of, I don't know, let's say 50 languages, and trace the similarities between them. And then because they then discovered that there are rules governing language change, all languages change, but in particular predictable ways, you know, they don't make sudden leaps from one sort of thing to another. You, you go step by step, so you, and you and at a particular rate. So you say that it's a theory, but it's actually a, it's as near fact as um, you can get without actually having them telling us all about it. Um, but the, the the evidence is absolutely compelling. What the the nineteenth century linguists have discovered was that uh, every language in Europe. With the exception of Basque, every language in Europe, every language in northern India, Nepal, Afghanistan, Iran, <laughs> we all come from one language because you could they could trace the descendants, and then even if there were no record of the descendant languages, the farther you go back in time, they could infer what the ancestral languages were because of the shared. Uh, Features that they would have in the in the, the daughter languages that they've decreed. You know, they could, you can infer what was going on in the past, and you can keep going beyond the invention of writing in the third century, uh, third millennium BC, and then go back even farther. So some people have uh, gone back, tried to go back as far as well recently thirteen thousand years to discover what kind of languages were being spoken then. Really, that's very controversial. What isn't controversial is the language of Proto-Indo-European, which is the ghastly term they've given this one ancestral language, which somehow uh, took, had the linguistic takeover of the known world. And you use the example of um, the word for a male parent, which, of course, in English is, is father, mm. and use the Dutch examples of father in German vater, Scandinavian language far, and this goes right even to extinct languages such as Tukarian, whereas Parcha related to Pater in uh, yes. in, in Latin. Um, Tukarian was a language spoken on the edge of the Chinese border. I mean that that was a branch that went um, that went uh, east. So the, 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 their um, their reach was extraordinary, and it was one tribe. And don't forget, they weren't just kind of going into empty homelands and then speaking their own language. There were hundreds, thousands of languages being spoken all over uh, Europe and indeed the northern, northwestern China at that time. But somehow they were all wiped out by this one language. So why were they so successful, these <laughs> early globalizers? Well, the, the easiest theory would be that they were, they were the people who introduced farming. Uh, and that was a, a favourite theory for a while, because only that would explain the absolute takeover. You know, they've got this new technology, they come in, they introduce it, they just replace the hunter-gatherers that were there before. 
but that doesn't fit. The, that farming happened in Europe 7,000 BC. This happened much later. Um, so the, the obvious thing then would be military invasion. Maybe they just took over the whole world, you know. Uh, but that seems unlikely. There were too few of them. But what they did have, they had two secret weapons, <laughs> uh, which they, they were a fascinating tribe, but they had two, not just one, but two items of new technology. I think those helped them and uh, explained them. They had the tamed horse, which had just they just uh, tamed the horse in the steppe. And they used the horses actually as herds for, for meat, as well as riding them. And then um, they had the wheel, which had come from Ur uh, in Mesopotamia, uh, invented uh, fairly recently. And they got the wheel. So they were pulling wagons, horse-drawn wagons, and that was their secret weapon because they they, they were um, nomads, so and very very successful nomads. So and it was a, a different sort of invasion. They took over the uh, all of Europe and in, in northern India um, as their kind of pasture land. And you're also talking about whether well, the period we're talking about here is the Bronze Age, mm. which is a period of very dry conditions um so settled farmers would have quite a problem yeah a europe at the time which was had been really prosperous and a, a civilization which had really thrived and agrarian civilizations especially right like under danube and places that, that farming had really worked tremendously well in europe and then there was climate change sudden a sudden dryness uh, and I think, I think it, it turned very cold as well, cold and dry, and devastated the crops. But it was great for grazing for the Proto-Indo-Europeans. They had huge herds, um, the largest herd the world had ever seen <laughs> at that point of uh, 500, 1,000 animals being got, you know, uh, shepherded by, by horsemen. And so these people were wealthy, mm-hmm. they were well-fed when others weren't, they had wheels uh, as you point out and so there becomes an element of this language having a prestige because of these associations uh, in much the way say english does due, due to its connections with the united states for example and popular culture there's an element of that to it yeah i think english is the the modern day equivalent um english hasn't wiped out um languages as such, but it, it is so powerful that it, uh, in effect, English is going to be one of the very few languages left by the end of this century. Um, at the moment, there's 7,000 languages in the world. By the end of this century, there'll be 500. So that's a dramatic process of extinction. It's that kind of process taken on, uh, which happened, in, I think, at that time in Europe, um, that one language just simply took over because it had such prestige. And I think one of the things that really helped that prestige, um, we've got echoes of still, and uh, that was their stories. What they, they, a crucial part of their culture was that they could invite people into it. So people weren't excluded. They were invited in if, if, they, if they bought into the whole culture. And they had a fantastically glamorous kind of equivalent of Hollywood their, their uh, propaganda thing, their entertainment, was um, a whole huge feast at which there would be enormously long praise poems recited. 
fighting in honour of the chief or the tribe. Um, and that would give, that would confer an immense glamour on this language. So here these people were really, really rich, <laughs> really doing very well, everyone else starving. And they come along with their parties and their poems and singing and, and drink. They had meat. And the leader of this tribe, uh, who was probably a warrior priest, was called a rex, which again is, is linked to the Latin rex. And yeah, we well, see the linguistic connections there. This is where you can actually get have some, it, it's quite thrilling, I think, to see uh, known words in a, in a, a language spoken in 3500 BC, so that we know that their word for a leader was rex, uh, which obviously is Latin rex. And we know their number system too, or at least we know how yeah, to, how well, they count yeah, from one to ten. I, I think. Well, I'm not very good in my Proto-Indo-European pronunciation. I really have to uh, be fairly uh, apologetic about it. But it goes something like: Here's one to ten. Oinos duo treas quetores penque rex septum octu nun decum. It's Pretty familiar. Oino, duo, trea. Mm. Amazing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's a fascinating story, Harry. And um, it's uh, available, uh, the story of the Proto-Indo-Europeans, in the August edition of History Today. So thank you very much, Harry. Thank you. Thank you. Harry Ritchie and Paul Lay there. You can read more about Proto-Indo-European in the August issue of History Today. Now we head over to Burma and India, via the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. Here's Rhys Griffiths to explain more. In the 1850s, Captain Linnaeus Tripe was among the earliest photographers to document India and Burma, first in an amateur capacity as a British soldier working for the East India Company, and later as official photographer to the region. More than 60 of Tripe's prints, produced between 1852 and 1860, are currently on display at the Victoria and Albert Museum in what is the photographer's first major British exhibition. I met the exhibition's curator, Roger Taylor, to discuss Tripe's life, his involvement on the mission to Burma, and his impact on 19th century photography. Captain Linares Tripe um, was born in Devonport, um, in England, one of many sons, and like all younger sons in the British um, upper classes and middle classes, you had to, you couldn't inherit, you had to go off and make, make good, and he got sent off to the Indian Army. And so at a very young age, I think at the age of 18, he sails and leaves England and becomes a cadet in the Army of the East India Company in Madras. And while he was there for the first 10 years, he was away from everything. No sense of photography, didn't know what photography was. And then when he comes back in 1851, you had to serve 10 years before you could come back home on leave back on leave and arrives in April 1851, literally just before the Great Exhibition. He arrives at the Great Exhibition and bingo, you know, he goes out and photography is part of this whole, this is what's coming on. And he's, he's around and there's a forming, formation of the Photographic Society. And this is a formal, the first formal Photographic Society in Britain and it was set up in 1853. He clearly heard about it, knew about it. And he was one of the founder members. He was, I think, number three on the list. He was there, you know, with everybody and at his, at his foundation formation. And in December of 1854, he goes down to Mysore and starts documenting one of the oldest and most ruinous temple sites in a place called Bilore. Mm-hmm. And um, he, he sets off down there and 
he makes a series of photographs and he, he surveys the site. He, he, his approach to the site is that of a surveyor. He comes up with those hundred photographs. That is entirely self-initiated. So there was no reason why, no, no outcome. He just wanted to do it. And it comes to the attention of a man called Lord Harris. Mm-hmm. And Lord Harris thinks he's a wonderful sentence, you know, sends word up to Lord Dalhousie, who was the, the Governor General. Um, and as a result of that, he then gets commissioned to join the mission to Burma. Mm-hmm. He prints the Burma series, and as a result of that, he then gets um, appointed to become the photographer, the official photographer to South India. The mission to Burma. We had had a dispute and gained territory with the Burmese in Lower Burma and had occupied Rangoon and taken over the lower reaches of Burma. And the Indian, the British administration in India wanted to reach a settlement with the king, Mindan Men, who had succeeded his brother. And diplomatic negotiations began throughout 53 and then 54 with exchange of gifts and exchange of a diplomatic party down to Calcutta. And that, in turn, led to the mission, a diplomatic mission being sent up the river to Mirapur to see the king, to try and get a proper settlement. Dalhousie knew from the outset he wasn't going to get it. But that actually didn't matter. What mattered was sending this in and establishing good relationships with his king. It's hard to imagine what a diplomatic mission is in the 19th century. I mean, there were nearly 500 of them on four boats, yeah, I mean, it's a, big, it's a big undertaking, but at the core of it, we have a group of men who are all experts in their field, geology, hydrology, you know, mining, etc. And they all go up and they're all working to gather information. So at, at every stage on the river, someone measuring the bottom of the river, working out how deep it is, where the rapids are, where the shells are, everywhere. They go on shore and look at the fields which were producing oil. They found out where the oil fields were. They found out where the coal seams were. They found out where the roads were. They found out all this information. And they would gather all of this. They go to Pagal Mayo and they start to survey the site. The major temples there, they measure and draw as accurately as they can and try and photograph them. So you have these photographic records and you have these drawn plans and elevations done by the surveyors. If you're ruling you know, the ruling authority, you have a responsibility to try and understand it. And you map it, you survey it. I mean, there was a trigonometric survey of India. Can you imagine the task of doing that? <laughs> Starting in the south of India, ending up in, you know, in the Himalayas. I mean, it's just this mind-blowing task. You then had to know where everything lay. You had to know the numbers. You had to know as much data as you could gather. So on one level, it's about data and information gathering. At another level, it's actually about making a document of fact. So that if we have uh, these temples at Halabi that are in a ruinous state, this is a very powerful argument for their preservation. In essence, it was about documenting things before they disappear. Recording musical instruments and the way of life, the architecture, the religious buildings, etc. etc. So he's, he's about this, this concept of a photographic survey. It's very early on in his mind. The photographs that he made in Burma are for private consumption, internal consumption. Um, the V&A started collecting trout photographs, but essentially they were under the, everything was you know hidden. Very few of them were exhibited publicly, except in India. Very few of them were entered into the kind of public consciousness, for want of a better word, of India. 
Um, and I think that's very sad. That's part of the problem. He, he's remained largely unknown. You know, there were others at work, but nobody at that scale, and nobody with that output, and nobody with that kind of unique vision of visual discipline plus artistic sensibility, and nobody who produced such comprehensive bodies of work like the Burma series and like all the volumes for the Madras series. Nobody did that. So his output in that sense was, was different to everybody else, and he, he has a very important place in our understanding of early photographic history, uh, and particularly early photographic history in India. Our thanks to Roger Taylor. The exhibition is at the V&A until October 2015. That's all for this episode. The August issue of History Today is out now, while this podcast will return next month. Thanks for listening. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.